Take your Bibles. If you would please and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew, chapter 24. I'm going to start reading in verse 29. Matthew, chapter 24, verse 29. We're slowly waking our way through this last uh, long sermon that Jesus delivered uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we're going to read from verses 29 to 35 of Matthew, chapter 24, uh, today. So you follow along as uh, I read Matthew 24, verse 29. Jesus says, Immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and when all the peoples of the earth, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Let's pray for just a moment, shall we? Father, we come before you today and we are thankful to you for your word that we can read and understand. Lord, as as we're about to look into the scriptures, we are mindful of the help of the Holy Spirit and we are thankful. Lord, we're also mindful this morning of our Uh, friends, our fellow countrymen, particularly in the state of Kentucky, who um, went through devastating storms. And there are towns that are gone from this devastating tornado. Lord, we pray that you would show mercy on them, that perhaps there's some even of our brothers and sisters who have tried to gather together this morning, if possible, to worship. Remind them of your faithfulness and of your presence and your dependability in terrible days. Have mercy on them, we pray, uh, together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot who fought in the Iraq War, and after he finished his 300th mission as the war was coming to a close, he was surprised when it was announced to him and his crew that they had permission to fly back to the United States to be with their families. So they hurriedly packed their gear together, they flew across the world, landed in Massachusetts, and then he rented a car for the long drive to western Pennsylvania to uh, be home. He was looking forward to seeing and surprising his family. He got there after sunup and, and he noticed, to his surprise, there was a big uh, banner on the garage that said, Welcome Home Dad. It was struck him because no one had called, no one had told them they were on their way home. He didn't even expect to be able to leave Iraq so soon. And, and here he was, this big banner. He walked into the house, the kids were getting ready for school, and uh, they were half-dressed for school, and they, Daddy, they yelled and gave him hugs. And then his wife, Susan, came into the kitchen, and she was dressed to the nines. I don't know that they say that anymore. She was dressed to the nines. She had a beautiful yellow dress on, and she was wearing her makeup, and her hair was done, and, and uh, he, he, 
just looked at her and he said, how did you know? How did you know I was, I was going to be home today? And she said, well, we didn't know you were going to be home today. Once we knew that the war was nearly over, we knew that you'd be home one of these days. We knew that you'd try to surprise us, so we decided to be ready every day. Ready every day is a good description of how we followers of Jesus are. We're ready every day for the return of the Lord Jesus. At least that's Matthew's hope when he recorded for us this passage of scripture uh, from a sermon that Jesus delivered. That's the hope of this passage. Jesus has revealed the details, reviewed the details, some of the details of his return. But now even in this passage, he begins to turn his attention to equipping his disciples for waiting, for that, that period of time that they'll be waiting and longing for him to come back. My goal is over these weeks that we'll be looking at this uh, passage of scripture is I want to help you grow in your anticipation and your longing for the, the Lord Jesus to return. We are like in some ways uh, a group of people huddled together in a, in a house for a surprise party and we're waiting for the guest of honor to return. There is a palpable sense of excitement under those conditions. That's an excitement and anticipation that's hard to maintain. And my, I suppose my illustration even falls apart that in this instance, it's Jesus who's going to surprise us, not the other way around. But you understand what I'm talking about, this sense of longing. Some of you are tempted to think that looking forward to the return of Jesus is something that only old people do. Something that only Christians with a few miles on the odometer do. Um, and, and it makes sense to you, you think to yourself, they've already lived their lives, right? They've already graduated from uh, high school or college. They've already gotten married. They've already had kids. They've already established and built a career. They've gone on a few vacations. They bought a house. They've had some grandkids. They've even spent a few years retired. Of course, they're looking for the next stage. And not to be ugly about it, every human being, if you live long enough, you'll reach the age when things in your body stop working. Things start to hurt, and, and your body doesn't work the way it's supposed to be. For me, it was age 30, but everybody will reach that age. And when you're old, you got a long list of things that don't work. It, it makes sense that our senior saints would be the ones who would be most anxious for the age, the, this age to come to an end and for Jesus to return. But I wonder... I wonder if you're thinking clearly about it. Do you suppose that it's possible that those dear saints, they have just known Jesus for so long that they recognize that there's nothing on earth that can compare to being with him, and that's why they're looking forward to his return? Or is it possible that uh, they have enough experience of life on earth? They were 18 like you once, and they, they just recognize that, that with all their expectations, all their hopes, as wonderful as the joys of life on this earth can be, um, they're still, they still fall short. There's still an absence. What would it look like for you if you were 18 years old and as excited and anticipatory of the return of the Lord Jesus as your 88-year-old grandmother? What would that look like in your life? 
it's clear from the, their letters that the apostles wanted to cultivate this longing in their readers. Think about how many times the apostles mentioned it. I'm, I'm going to quote a few verses for you. We're going to read a couple of verses uh, to that end. Look at Jude verse 21. We'll start to be back and work our way forward. Jude 21. Keep yourselves in God's love. Why? Because you're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. You too, eternal life. 1 John 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. We read in the covenant, we lead new and holy lives. Why do we lead new and holy lives? Because we expect that Jesus is coming back. 1 Peter 1 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. It's coming, it's coming, it's not here now, but it's coming. Then Titus 2, we wait, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then I have, um, I think, more than once mentioned to you uh, how much I appreciate how Paul describes Christians in 1 Thessalonians 1. Look what he says. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait. This is who you are. You are the ones who wait. Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We Christians ought to be really patient people. Are you a patient person? We Christians ought to be really patient people because that's by definition who we are. We're the ones who've turned to God to wait for his son to come. We should have a lot of experience and be really good at being patient. Now, we're walking through Matthew 24 and 25, and I've mentioned a couple times that these are difficult chapters. They're about the end times, and we don't always agree on what the end times, uh, how the details of the end times are going to unfold. Uh, Jesus told the disciples that the temple in Jerusalem would, would be destroyed, and they asked, when, what are the signs going to be of your coming? And there are some people who read Matthew 24, and they think it points chiefly to the second coming part of their question. And they read this and they see the emphasis on Jerusalem and, and, and uh, the, city of, uh, the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And they think about the second coming and, and they recognize Jesus talks about, or Paul talks about Jesus rescuing us from the coming wrath. So they think about the rapture and, and God working in his people, Israel. And that's their main focus of this passage. And then there are some brothers and sisters uh, who think about this passage in terms of the destruction of the temple that happened in AD 70, a past event. Both views have their problems. I'm, I'm more inclined towards that future view, but both views have their problems. I'd like to ask, someday I'm going to ask Matthew, why, when you summarize Jesus' sermon, did you make it so hard to figure these details out? Why'd you do that? I mean, I'm sure Jesus was clear clearer with the disciples 
than this summary of his sermon is, huh, why Matthew? Uh, today, actually, both views have their problems. Today, we're going to talk about two of the most thorny verses for both sides here. I, maybe you've noticed, maybe you've noticed as we've gone through this, that I have tried to show you Jesus gives counsel to a group of people who are going to be on the planet Earth when these events happen. He's given specific advice for them, counsel for them, that is most relevant for them. I've tried to, as we've walked through, show how that counsel applies to us in our age. Regardless of your view of the end times, here's what looking, uh, looking for Jesus looks like. And to that end, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about four assurances that Christ gives about his return. Assurances about the return of Jesus. And the point of these assurances is I want to point them out to you so that it will cultivate to nurture your own longing for his return. Here's number one. Number one, you won't miss it. You won't miss it. We're going to spend the vast majority of our time here. You won't miss it. Up into verse 29, Jesus is talking about the, uh, the judgments and the suffering that's going to happen before he returns. And in verse 29, he gets to his actual coming. And it is going to be an event that is going to be loud, public, triumphant. Verse 30 says it's going to be a display of the power and the great glory of God. I've seen Niagara Falls hundreds of to- uh, dozens of times. I've seen the Atlantic Ocean. I have been in the Rockies, I've seen the Alps, Uh, I've seen the Northern Lights. There's a lot of magnificent things in this planet that I have not seen, but there's a lot that I have seen. Yet I am still confident that nothing that is in this world can compare to the magnificent sight that it will be when the Lord Jesus returns. You won't miss it. I, I mentioned that because there are some preachers and teachers who don't place much much emphasis on these words coming from Jesus, and they don't place much emphasis on this book coming from Matthew, who think that all this return of Jesus talk is is figurative, imaginative, metaphorical, that, that this is not really the way that history ends, that Jesus has returned in our hearts or something like that. Uh, you can't believe that and take what Jesus says seriously. Uh, now, let's, let's talk about the details that he mentions here in verses 29 and 30. These details. Verse 29 begins with one of those thorny words, immediately. Immediately after the distress of these days. Now, if you think that Matthew is talking primarily, Jesus is talking primarily about the second coming, and he's talking about the days of tribulation that precede the second coming, the word immediately is your friend because it makes perfect sense to you. Yes, great distress, then immediately the sun is going to come. Yes, okay. If you're one of those brothers and sisters, dear brothers and sisters, who think that most of verse 24, chapter 24 is about events that happened in the past before the temple was destroyed, that word immediately is a bit of a struggle. Maybe then your word, you need to think about the word immediately in terms of certainty. The emphasis would be on the certainty. It is absolutely, definitely, he's going to come. Maybe. Now, there are some of our brothers and sisters who think, yes, Jesus is still going to come in the future. But they think that this immediately, that what's happening in verse 29 is a, a depiction of the judgment that comes on Israel and the destruction of the temple. That's what they think. But I, I don't think that will do. Look here at the the cosmic signs that Jesus describes. 
The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. I think these are literal things that Jesus is describing. And in the description of it, he's uh, alluding to several Old Testament prophets, several Hebrew prophets. In fact, Daniel Turner says in these verses, he counts 20 allusions to Old Testament prophets. The stars themselves, the sun itself, the moon itself are going to testify to the great glory of Jesus as he returns. They'll be darkened. That doesn't bother me much. God has darkened the sun before. There are some people who believe that um, when when he's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavenly bodies, in in the first century and um, in centuries on either side of it, Uh, people tended to believe that uh, the stars and the sun and the moon in some ways were representative of spiritual forces. We might say angels or demons. That that in some way, the gods that the people on the planet worshipped were in some way represented by the stars and the moon and the sun. And if, if that's Jesus' emphasis here, what he's saying is, that when he returns, there'll be no competitors with him for power. No spiritual forces allied uh, against him that, that will be able to stand. Cosmic signs. Then in verse 30, he talks about the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. This is a bit of a puzzle. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. What is that sign? Well, in the Middle Ages, they thought that there would be a big cross that would appear in the heavens before Jesus came. Some people think, on the basis of the fact that there's this trumpet, that Jesus' return here is pictured as the arrival of a king, and the sign of a king is his banner. We don't live in a, in a country with a, with a king, so we're not used to this regalia. But, but just think about our own national anthem. Francis Scott Key wrote that poem. He was in a boat on, in Baltimore Harbor. He was a prisoner of war while the British were bombarding Fort McHenry. And in the morning, he wanted to know what? Is the flag still there? Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming? Is it still there? Can, can you see the banner? Maybe, maybe the sign is the banner of the return of Jesus. It's his own kingly banner being unfurled, maybe. Or it's also possible that the sign, that the sun is the sign. Then will appear the sign, that is the son of man in heaven. And the text says, all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming. Why are they going to mourn? Why are the peoples of the earth going to mourn when they see him? Every eye will see him. You won't be able to miss it. Why are they going to mourn? Because he comes to judge when he comes. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop, great British bishop said about the the differences between the return and the the first and second coming. He, He said this, the second personal coming of Christ will be as different as possible from the first. He came the first time as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was born in the manger of Bethlehem in loneliness and lowliness and humiliation. He took the very nature of a servant and was despised and not esteemed. He was betrayed into the hands of wicked men, condemned by an unjust judgment, mocked, flogged, crowned with thorns, and at last crucified between two thieves. 
He will come the second time as the king of all the earth with royal majesties. The princes and great men of this world will themselves stand before his throne to receive an eternal sentence. Before him, every mouth will be silenced and every knee bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The nations of the earth will mourn. Look how John describes it, this familiar passage in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That's why they're mourning. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They're mourning. Because he's coming to judge. How different, how different that is than the first time that he came. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The first time he came, he came to offer his life as a sacrifice. Not to bring the wrath of God, but to bear the wrath of God, so that you might not bear God's wrath. He came to be our sin bearer, the one who would pay the penalty for our rebellion against God. He died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and between his first coming and his second coming, the plea of our church is that you would turn to Jesus and find forgiveness and life in him. This is the most important thing that we as a congregation believe and we as a congregation teach. You must know this. Christ died for our sins. And with that good news of forgiveness in his name, there is also a warning that is implicit in this. If you will not have Jesus as your savior, then someday you will face him as your judge. There's a legend It's not true, clearly. That's why it's a legend, but it's an interesting story. Uh, Supposedly, one day, Satan called together his evil minions, and he said, I need someone for a very special assignment. I need someone to go to the planet Earth, and I need them to add to the ruination of the souls of men and women. Who will go for me? And someone, some evil minion demon, stepped before Satan and said, I will go. And Satan said, well, how how will you add to the ruination of the souls of men and women? And this uh, this demon said, I will convince them that there is no heaven. And Satan said, they will not believe you. They're made in God's image. There's a bit of heaven in every human heart. And in the end, everyone knows that right and good must have the victory. You may not go. Your strategy will not work. The second demon came before Satan and said, oh, evil Lord, I'll go. What's your strategy? Satan said, well, I'll convince him that there is no hell. Satan said, they won't believe you. Because in every human heart, there's this thing called the conscience. 
There's an inner voice that testifies to them to the truth that not only will good be triumphant, but evil will be defeated. Your plan will not work. You may not go. And the third demon stepped before Satan and said to him, I'll go for you. I will add to the ruination of the souls of men and women. And Satan said, what will you do? What's your strategy? And the demon said, I will tell them, I will convince them that there is no hurry. That there's no need. There's no urgency. No urgency to think about the fact that Jesus is our Savior, yet also our coming Lord. These nations will mourn when he appears. I wonder if there's something more to it, too, because in the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12, he's speaking about the return or the coming of God's Messiah. And look what he says in Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So now we're talking not the nations of the earth. We're talking about the Jews. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Repentance. Is this the weeping of repentance? Now, one more detail here in these verses. Jesus mentions the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When clouds appear in the Hebrew scriptures, they're a sign of the presence of God. And this is a reminder, I think, pointing to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel seven thirteen says, In my vision I saw... Uh, I, I looked and there, sorry, I lost my place. That's all right. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Garrett Kell said, the day of judgment is going to be wild. Many who appeared wise will be exposed as fools. Many who seemed strong will be shown to be weak. Those who appeared to be right will be proven wrong. Those who seemed courageous will be seen as cowardly. God will set all records straight when the Lord Jesus comes. It's a reminder to us when we read this passage that what Jesus says in Matthew 16 is true when he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Uh, we, We say this without arrogance, but because Jesus is our Lord, we indeed are on the right side of history. There are churches, individual churches, that will grow and, and, and shrink, come and, and go. There are um, churches in regions, in nations, that there will rise to prominence and then fall. Continents where the gospel has been preeminent and now continents where the gospel is not preeminent. But with the Lord Jesus, the crucified, risen, ascended, returning Lord Jesus, the church will emerge triumphantly. And every Sunday, we meet in anticipation of that day. We sing, come and adore Christ the Lord. We sing that knowing that someday all people will acclaim him as Lord. That's why Hebrews 10.25 says, not neglecting to meet together, not giving up meeting together, as is the habit of some. There are some who are not meeting together who should be meeting together. Some have gotten into the habit of it. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another 
and all the more as you see the day, the day drawing near. That's what we do on Sunday morning. We are people of the future, and we sing in anticipation of the future. You won't miss it. Number two, we're going to pick up the pace here. Assurance number two, you won't be left out. You won't be left out. Verse 31. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, some people think that this is a reference to the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 because of the clouds and the trumpet. I don't think so. The details don't seem to match well enough. But what the rapture and this ingathering do have in common is how comprehensive they are. The rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 is comprehensive to the dead followers of Jesus and the living followers of Jesus it's, and everyone in between. It's that comprehensive. And here, this passage, this ingathering is comprehensive in its direction from the four winds, all four directions on, the, on, the, on your compass. And from one end of the heavens to the other, everybody, everybody. Persecution tends to scatter followers of Jesus. Now here in faithfulness, Christ is going to gather. We remember, remember this passage reminds us of Christ's faithfulness. We want to be faithful people. I want you to be faithful followers of Jesus. I want to be a faithful pastor. But what matters supremely is not our faithfulness to him, but his faithfulness to us. And in faithfulness to his people, Jesus will call them to himself and not one will be left out. Not one will be forgotten. Not one will be lost. On Sunday mornings, we gather together in anticipation of that day. On Sunday mornings, we also gather together in, in, as a marker one more week down in which Jesus kept us. Spend one more week uh, that Jesus kept his promises to us to keep us, to carry us, to sustain us. It reminds me of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. He must keep us because we cannot keep ourselves. You will not be left out. Number three, you won't have to wait forever. You won't have to wait forever. Verses 32 and verses 33 are about the fig tree. In Palestine, there are two, there were in Jesus' day, two trees that would lose their leaves in the winter. Olives and the leaves on an olive tree grow in early spring and fig trees. Fig trees put out their leaves in late spring. The sap rises so the branches are, are more limber and then the leaves come. And when a fig tree's branches are limber and the leaves come, you know summer is right around the corner. And Jesus says, you can read signs. You know how to read signs in nature. You should be able to read signs uh, of the time and recognize that, that my coming is near. And then in verse 34, he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, this is the thorny verse, another thorny verse. All these things, what's he talking about? I think he's talking about all the things that point to his coming. All these things that point to his coming. And he says, these things will happen, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, what's the this generation, or who is the this generation? There are some people, it's debated, there are some people who think that when Jesus uses the term this generation, he's talking about all human beings. 
All human beings will still be on earth. The uh, human beings like you will be on earth before all these things, still before all these things have happened. Some people think it's a reference to uh, the nation of Israel. Some people think when we talk about the future, these being future events, that Jesus is talking about people, when the process starts, it will happen fast within a generation. That it's going to happen in a concise, compact period of time. I think the most natural way to read this is that Jesus is talking to the people he's speaking to. All these things are going to happen to you, this generation. If you're keeping score, the word immediately might, think you, might make you think that Jesus is talking about the end times. The this generation might make you think more clearly about AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. It's, it's, it's tricky. The point of this, though, of what Jesus is saying here, is that these events are going to unfold under a limited period of time. It's not going to drag out. It's not going to last forever. You won't have to wait forever. And this is a reminder to us that these events that Jesus is speaking of could happen at any point in time. For his audience, and he's originally speaking to those disciples, there were some things that would have to happen before they come. But for us, no. They can happen at any time. It could be today. Jesus could come today and call us to himself. That's why you shouldn't put your roots too deeply in this world. That's why we believe Jesus when he said in Matthew chapter 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. We don't put roots down that are too deep because our happiness is in the age to come. And terrible things can happen to us here and it's hard But it's not devastating because our happiness is somewhere else, somewhere safe. One wonders if the reason that maybe your grandmother is looking forward to the return of Jesus is because she sent her heart, so much of her heart, on ahead. I'm not talking about her sister who passed away a couple years ago and her husband. I'm not talking about that. I'm thinking about all the hours that your grandmother spent cutting out VBS crafts and visiting the widow ladies in her neighborhood. And, and praying for you, the end great, all those things. Your grandmother sent so much of her heart ahead, she can't wait for Jesus to come. I wonder how much of your heart you've sent ahead. You won't. Um, uh, number four, we're going to move on to the fourth assurance here. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to doubt. You won't have to wait forever. And number four, you don't have to doubt. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's been a long time since Jesus made these promises. Let's be honest about it. It's been a long time. And doubt is understandable. Is he really coming back? I mean, it's been a long time. You should be encouraged to know that they were doubting even in Peter's day, in the Apostle Peter's day. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he said... Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. Scoffing isn't a word that we use often enough. We should bring that back. Verse 4, they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Where is he? It's been so long. Jesus says, 
that his word about his coming is more secure than creation itself. Now you shouldn't miss that claim. In these chapters in Matthew, Jesus has spoken about his prophets, his angels, and now he says that his word is more secure than all creation itself. Who is this person? These are divine claims that Jesus is making. Think about the world. Jesus talks about the heavens and the earth. I imagine that you have plans for this week and they are dependent upon the world still existing tomorrow. You probably have plans to go somewhere and you do so hoping that the street in front of your house is still going to be there. You have plans tomorrow hoping that, yes, the sun will still rise tomorrow. Your, your, your existence is you have plans and the consistency of the universe is essential to your plans. Jesus says, heaven and earth can disappear. My words will still stand firm. Certain. A secure hope. After World War II, uh, the city of Warsaw was just devastated by bombing. During World War II, it was devastated by bombing. Flattened buildings everywhere. In one section of, of downtown Warsaw, there was one part of one wall that was still standing in a building that had been the headquarters for the British and Foreign Bible Society. And on this only wall that was still standing in that section of Warsaw was painted these words from the Lord Jesus, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. His words about his coming. And we say with the Apostle John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your kindness to us in speaking to us about the events that will come. They're, they're supposed to be comforting to us and, and cultivating us hopefulness. Lord, I, I pray um, that you would tune our hearts and our minds, that we would be waiting, gladly waiting, anticipating, longing people. Lord, we confess to you at times the temptation to set our roots down deep here in this life. It's, it's, it's hard to avoid that temptation and hard to set all of our, hard not to set all of our affections on the things that are here. Remind us of where our heart's happiness can truly be found and where it is truly secure. Help us, help us to be faithful, encouraging one another. And we pray together that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in his name, saying, Amen.